Tom Sumner program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. I have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky thing. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We kind of ke- we're it's interesting we're keeping this uh, Hollywood theme going uh, a little bit this hour because uh, my guest this hour is uh, an author, motivational speaker, leader, mentor, etc., with uh, a new book called Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. But he started out as an attorney representing uh, companies like Warner Brothers, MGM, Sony, Lionsgate. And uh, he joins me by phone. His name is Norman Bacall. Norman, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Tom. How are you today? Good. Um, Is it, like, easy-duty... being at legal representation for uh, studios like Warner Brothers, MGM, Sony, etc. <laughs> you have to be on your toes. Uh, <laughs> there, there is little room for error, <laughs> or they're off talking to somebody else very quickly. <laughs> um, but what was that experience like? Did you live in Los Angeles? Because you built and, oh. and led one of Canada's prestigious law firms. Right. So I'm, I'm from Montreal originally, and okay. in 1989, I, I moved to Toronto and opened up an office there. Uh, th- and that was my base for the next 25 years. And uh, my, work, my work began uh, in the film industry in Canada when it was still fairly young, and that's when I started making uh, contacts with originally with Canadian producers and studios and eventually made my way down to Los Angeles. And the one thing I discovered, and uh, I'm sure your listeners uh, can appreciate this in Flint, and that is uh, in the middle of a harsh winter, there's nothing like a trip down to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> I lived out there for about a year, and I understand how people get addicted to the weather because I live in Michigan. So, um, 
we, we have very similar climate to, to that which mm-hmm. you've experienced. But yeah, um, so. but but let's talk about that that law firm collapsed, um, and it wasn't even during a pandemic. Um, what what led to that, and and how did that kind of redirect your professional path? Well, as I said, I spent 25 years building that firm. From uh, at one point, we were we when I when I started in Toronto, we were four lawyers. And over the next 25 years, we built it into an office of about 200 lawyers. Our firm, nationally and internationally, uh, had close to 600 lawyers. And uh, for for about 15, almost 16 years, I uh, I built and led the whole organization. And we even had a few former prime ministers work for us. Um, and a, a year after uh, I left management. Um, we went through some difficult economic times. It was um, around the beginning of uh, it was the beginning of 2013. So we had a change in leadership, a difficult economy. Um, uh, one new leader who who thought the firm there was time for change in the firm, and that was possibly not the best idea. And literally within 14 months, the firm collapsed. So, um, so if you can imagine, uh, here I was, someone who had gone pretty much from success to success throughout my career. I, I'd financed uh, billions of dollars of Canadian-made motion pictures. I'd sat on the board of, of Lionsgate while they were uh, while they were building uh, themselves into the studio that they now are, and was even involved in the, the, the pressing the go button on uh, the Hunger Games franchise. So it was, uh, you know, it, it was a a career filled with interesting people and wonderful opportunities and and lots of challenges, but uh, uh, more than my due share of success, I have to say. So and then suddenly it was all gone. It was like the firm collapsed, and uh, I felt like I was facing a loss of what I'd spent my pretty much my entire adult life building was suddenly gone. So is and the moral to the story? Is the moral to the story change is good if it's the right change? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you have, listen, when you're going through it, and, and as your listeners know, anyone who's experienced a serious loss or, or illness or challenges to their mental health know how, how complicated and difficult it is to pull yourself out. Now, I had a very strong wife behind, uh, beside me helping, but literally I was... 57 years old and everything I had worked for was now gone uh, and you know with, with along with the economic loss that goes with it and it was time to start over and it's interesting because you know when you when you meet someone in that kind of situation or when, when you're you, when you see someone in mourning you go up to them you you know you put your arm around them you you say you know times will get better and they look at you like you know with blank eyes yeah that is the worst yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They look at you with blank eyes and say, "Are you crazy? I can't. I can't possibly imagine what better looks like or feels like." Uh, but you know, so I had to. Uh, instead of retiring, I rewired. Uh, that I, something I read somewhere. It's, I went into rewirement, and I had to figure out, okay, what do I do with the rest of my life at this point in time? So um, it was it was my wife's idea. Sharon suggested I. She handed me a notebook and said, "Here, start writing. You need to." process your feelings and your anger and 
six months later, I stopped writing because I had 750 hand, page, hand pages written uh, and still no idea that it might be a book. Uh, and then I began to learn how to turn it into a book. So that was, that was, uh, that's the book that became Breakdown, which uh, became a Canadian bestseller. Yeah, and, that was, uh, and, and that was, that was kind of a memoir. And then you turned around and wrote a, a fiction novel. Yes. And uh, again, little did I know how little I know, how little <laughs> I knew. You think if you've written a book, you can write, uh, which is somewhat, somewhat true. But uh, when I sent the, uh, the draft off to my editor, uh, a draft that I thought was a competent enough draft of, of the novel, uh, and I said, listen, I don't want you to edit it. I just want you to tell me if I'm on the right track. And she said, uh, she said listen, the, the story is really interesting, uh, but you write like an amateur. And, you know, once I, once I pulled that knife out from between my ribs. <laughs> it's hard to take for somebody who's already a bestseller. Uh, yeah, pretty much. So <laughs> she said, here's, here's, here's some things you need to learn about fiction. And she pointed me. She started me off with Fiction for Dummies which is actually a really good book. And, uh, and then I started reading some other, uh, some other teachers and, and, and all the skills you need to learn about becoming a fiction author. And it was like being, in some respects, it was like being a first-year lawyer all over again. I was restarting my career, and I had to learn uh, a whole new assortment of skills and, and again, it was my choice. I could have given up and said, listen, I don't mind being an amateur writer. And I'll, you know, I'll write for my friends or for myself. And they'll sit on my shelf and no one's ever going to read them other than the people who, who feel obliged to because they're my family. Uh, or I can see if I can do it, which was sort of the, it, it's now what I teach. It's, uh, it was the hallmark of my life. Uh, you know, I, I, when I was a, a law student in law school, I had no idea what being a lawyer was all about. And, when I became a tax lawyer, I had no idea uh, that there was, a, you know, that there, there might even be a film financing business out there, and I had no idea how to run a law firm, and I had no idea how to write a book. So, uh, all, pretty much my entire uh, life was learning things I didn't know how to do. So, uh, I added this to the list. And w would you consider yourself a lifelong learner? Is that a concept that you embraced early in life or something that became part of your repertoire out of necessity? Yeah, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have just, certainly when you're young, you have no appreciation for what your life is going to be. Um, uh, so I wouldn't have called myself that, uh, in fact, ever until probably now when I look back at it and scratch my head. Uh, but I don't, it's, it's not so much being a lifelong learner, I think, and, and I write about it in Take Charge. It's about uh, really getting over the obstacles in, in your own head that keep you from trying new things. And it's mostly the fear of being embarrassed that you won't do it very well when you start. And you won't, of course not, because you don't know how to do it. But... Um, and but, but what I find and what I teach is if you can just accept the fact, yeah, I am afraid of failing. I am afraid of being embarrassed, but that's okay because that's, that's what learning is about. It's about learning, learning how to do something you don't know how to do, hitting your head against the wall a hundred times and telling yourself you like it uh, until you finally see the way through. To, and, you, and you turn back at the end and look back and say, wow. And I, and I still do that with my fiction now. 
uh, and even with Breakdown, I'll pick up the book, I'll open it on a random page, I'll read it and say, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> Is, was the second, uh, the second fiction now a little easier to write? Uh, no. <laughs> it was... It was I, I, it's interesting. The book, writing a book for me really has two parts to it. There's the, uh, the part where you get to learn your characters and who they are. And, and some lawyers, uh, sorry, some authors are extraordinarily disciplined. Like they'll figure it out. They'll write, you know, chapter and verse on every character, who they are, what they're like, uh, what their lives have been. And they know them inside out before they put it, and they know their story inside out before they put a word on the page. Whereas uh, I, I just don't have that discipline, unfortunately. I'm I'm much more uh, interested in discovering my characters uh, as I put them in situations, and then uh, when they react in a particular way, I I I plan to decide. Okay, if if they're going to do this, it means this must have happened to them ten years ago. And I and uh, and what it means is the first half of the book is agony, uh, while I try and figure everything out, and the second half of the book, uh, the second half meaning the second part of writing the book, once it's written, is going back and rewriting everything, and that is that's where the fun starts, because now I understand who they are. I can write new scenes much faster because I know these people because I've been living with them for a year. So you come up with the, the characters first, and then what's likely to happen to them, or do you have a story and then cast it? Uh, I start with a with, with the story in my head, uh, and I've been, for the, for the fictions, I've actually been following uh, Shakespeare. So the first book was uh, Modernized Othello. It's an African-American lawyer who uh, uh, crosses, crosses the racial border, enters the... Uh, marries the daughter of a white Alabama senator, and suddenly his life, uh, his life, which has been perfect, starts going down the tubes. Everything bad starts happening to him. So I, 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 I follow, I start with the uh, Othello characters, I put them in modern Manhattan, and I see what they do, and then the story kind of evolves. So I know, I know the beginning, I know how it's going to end, I have no idea what's going to happen in the middle. So, in, in some ways, you've been borrowing characters as opposed yes. to creating characters. You've, you've modernized them, which takes a certain amount of uh, rethinking the characters. But interesting, mm -hmm. interesting. I, I want to talk about uh, the skills that drive professional success and, and how they've happened for you and how you... Um, share them with other people in your book take charge but i have a break coming up norman can you stick around for a few minutes so we can dig oh absolutely it? all right my uh, guest, right here <laughs> my guest is uh, norman bacall author motivational speaker leader mentor and the author of a book that we're going to talk about after the break called take charge the skills that drive professional success and uh, if you're listening to us on wfov 92.1 fm in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more of the Tom Sumner Program right after this. 
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show Welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with uh, attorney-turned-author Norman Bacall. We're going to talk about his book, Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. Norman, uh, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Uh, No trouble at all. I kind of enjoyed the commercials. (laughs) (laughs) You're one of the few people. Um, But uh, getting back to, uh, during the last segment, we talked a lot about um, you know, how you got started and how you went from being an attorney to being a writer. And um, and uh, several startovers and even startovers within startovers. Um, what prompted you to write your, your, your first book, um, Breakdown, but then how did, how did that um, move forward to where we are now, Take Charge? Well, uh, well, breaking what was in part catharsis. It was a, a my chance to uh, get everything out, uh, you know, take all take all the anger and try and turn it to something positive, and and also take um, twenty five or even thirty. It was an entire career, but take thirty five years of experience, and uh, and have something to show for it. And the, the most important thing I learned. Uh, mostly from speaking about it afterwards on university campuses, was that uh, ultimately uh, what you leave behind at the end of a career uh, isn't bricks and mortar. We just think it is, and we, we or, or 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 our achievements. We tend to try and define ourselves by what we've done and who we think we are. But in the end, what I discovered was that. Uh, that really life is about uh, a the lessons you learned and b the lessons you you paid forward and what uh-huh. what I you know I discovered it's, it's much more about what I was able to impart from my experience to help others on their journeys and so that was the learning I got from speaking about uh, my career and I and I decided and it had been bothering me for a few years that there was nothing there was a huge gap. Uh, for professionals, but even for entrepreneurs, uh, between what's being taught in school, where you learn the hard lessons um, that sort of forms the base of your educational knowledge, and what you actually need to survive in business or in a profession, and there was nobody teaching it. So these are, and these are much more about like the soft skills, uh, like how to speak, how to how to do a radio interview, how to communicate with a client. Uh, the importance of sales and service, all the things. A, lo- a lot of uh, young people become professionals because they say to themselves, and I was one of them, oh, my God, I could never be an entrepreneur. I could never sell anything. And so I'm going to retreat to something nice and safe like the practice of law. What I didn't realize at the time was you have to, to, to succeed, even as a professional, you have to be a darn good salesman or salesperson, and and how do you learn those skills? How do you learn to communicate with clients? How do you learn about the importance of service? And uh, there was nobody teaching it. I, I picked it up on my own. But you I also don't... figured people, were, yeah, people, people might be getting a little tired of me, so I went out and interviewed you know, at least 25 other people and started to discover that 
didn't matter where we came from, whether we were, you know, I interviewed uh, immigrants to Canada who came to who came to the country with nothing but the shirt on their back. One of you know, one of them, very successful entrepreneur from from Jamaica. I interviewed people who grew up in the projects, whose parents were immigrants, who immigrants who couldn't speak a word, a word of English when they got here, uh, and then you know, people from 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 the middle class beginnings. And the one thing I discovered is we had all this commonality and we'd learned all, it seems, we'd learned pretty much the same lessons and it was time to write it down and, and actually make it available for a whole new generation or, and even for the existing generation. You know, interestingly, as, as you've gone through changes with what you do professionally and you, you spoke to this a little bit in the last segment, Norman, when you talked about, um, you know, learning how to write and, and learning to do, um, you know, and, and, and then learning how to write fiction. And and there, there were these new skills that you had to develop along the way. The book is called Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. All kinds of different professions have specific skills to that profession. Are there universal skills that people should have in order to be successful regardless of what they have to encounter and learn along the way to do specific things? The answer to that is absolutely yes. And, uh, and, and something that I taught uh, the young lawyers working for me that came up, and I, and I said, think about, think about your favorite restaurant or think about your favorite waiter. And wh- why is it that we, you know, with, uh, with the choice of, literally thousands of restaurants to choose from. Why do we keep going back to the same places? And the simple answer is it's great, it's great service and it's food that we like. And we'll go back for it time after time. And the secret of success, either in business or as a professional, is really no different. You, you just you have to uh, give, give the client or the prospective client more than they're expecting and surprise them with your great service and always try and be in their heads and think of think of don't think of I talk about perception and reality and this is this is to me the key to everything and it's and it's not just business it's, it's kind of like we all live in our own realities with our and based on our perceptions of everything going on around us but if you if you want to be successful as a professional or an entrepreneur you have to get into your client's head you have to think not not how hard am I working, not what did I learn, not how smart am I, but what does my client want, and how can I get that to my client even before I tell them I'm going to give it to them, and how am I going to deliver even more than I promised? It's like the waiter who brings you the dessert you didn't order. I learned this lesson from my son when he was 17. There were four women sitting in a restaurant, and he, was, he got this, this waiter job, this little local restaurant, and he'd served them. Uh, he'd served them lunch, and, uh, and they all passed on dessert and just ordered coffee. So he shows up five minutes later uh, with the molten uh, lava chocolate cake, which was the house specialty. And he puts it down in the middle of the table with four forks, and he said, "This is on the house." And uh, and of course <laughs> they ate it, <laughs> despite minor protests. And uh, he and he told me he came home. He said, "Listen, it cost me eight dollars." He said, "And the the tips they left me instead of fifteen percent, I got forty percent in tips." 
And it was like it was like my son, the seventeen year old, had turned a light bulb on in my head that I, you know, I never thought of. I said, I said, yeah, that's it. And you you outperformed, you surprised, uh, you made them happy, even if they hadn't taken a bite of it. Uh, you know, they left that restaurant thinking, this is a place I'm coming back to. So, if if we can do that as professionals, if if you can learn that early in your career or even late in your career, it doesn't really matter when you learn it. Uh, it get you the key is to step away from your perception of things and look at your client's perception because that's the only reality that matters is it as simple as as exceeding expectations <laughs> no you have to you have to know what you're doing uh, <laughs> but it but it but assuming you do you think about it we're you know we're we're all competing your your client has a choice of a a hundred different service providers, and and why do they choose one over another? Ultimately, I, I believe it's because the one who makes them feel special, they will feel a human connection with that that defies uh, logic, it defies business, but it's but ultimately it's a human connection that makes you special. And that, it ultimately, was the secret of my career. It's, you know, it's what I learned not because anybody taught me, but because, you know, I observed how clients related to me. And the more, I, what I discovered was the more time I spent to them, spent with them, sometimes just talking about their kids, calling them for no reason. You know, lawyers are particularly notorious for billing by, for docketing by the hour. So, and this is, some, this is a lesson I teach. I said, put yourself in your client shoes. Your lawyer calls you and just wants to have a social conversation. And the only thing that's going through your head is, how much is this costing me? Right, We're talking about his family, and and I know I'm going to get a bill for you know for tw- twenty minutes of social conversation. This is ridiculous, and all the client wants to do is get off the phone with you. So what did I do? I'd call, you know, I'd pick up the phone when I started a client relationship, and the first thing I told them was, "Listen, I'm not going to charge you for any short phone call. You'll never see that on your bill." Because really what I want, I want to have conversations with you. I want you to be able to feel comfortable talking to me. I'll come visit you. I won't charge you, you know, if we're just, if I'm just coming out to see how things are going, uh, I'm not, you're never, you're never going to see a bill for that. And what does that does is it encourages them to talk to me about their problems. And they're not going to talk to any of their other professionals about it because they're worried it's going to cost them money. Well, if I'm the first one to find out about the problem, now I can turn on my meter because I'm solving their problem. You know, I've always wondered, Norman, why lawyers don't um, don't charge by the project. <laughs> uh, some do. Uh, it's it's it, we're we're sort of somebody. Some American came up with this idea uh, two generations ago. I think it's about 50, 50 years now that uh, it could be sixty that uh, an American invented the billable hour. Yeah. And rather than charge by the project or or by what they thought felt right, uh, they moved into the, if we charge, you know, it's American innovation, but we, we charge by the minute, we're going to make way more money, and they were right. Um, but uh, it's, it's sort of come almost full circle. Uh, I, I kind of pioneered uh, in Canada the notion that uh, I'm only going to charge you if I deliver value. And we'll and we will come to an agreement in advance. If I deliver you full value, it'll be you know it, it'll be a lot. Uh, but if I don't deliver any value, why should you be paying me? 
like you bring your car in to be fixed, but I give it back to you two hours later and say, sorry, I couldn't fix it. Why should you be paying me anything? Yeah, the, the dreaded bench is. fee. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. For just yeah, such circumstances. do this all the time. <laughs> right, right. Really well, sorry, that'll be $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned um, interviewing 25 people for your book, Take Charge. Um, did you um, discover in your interviews with them that they had learned a lot of the same things that you had learned but differently? Or did you come across some new lessons along the way? Uh, occasionally I was uh, in awe of some of the people I interviewed just because of you know where they came from compared to where I started from. You know, I had a... You know, a sort of a classic middle middle white middle class upbringing, and here I was meeting people who had a much more difficult starting life, and yet they had manufactured their own success in but based on ultimately you know God gives us all different talents, so they were able to reach into their own bag of tricks based on what they were good at and fashion careers around those particular skills. One of them told me he was a particularly poor student, like he barely got through high school. Uh, and yet, he's one of the most successful in-house counsel, in other words, he works for a corporation, uh, in the country. Uh, and why? Because he had developed such incredibly good social skills. Uh, and he, dis he discovered he wasn't an in-class learner, but if, but uh, you know, if he figured, if, if he found different ways to learn that weren't in a classroom, and was able to get his law degree and became interested in you know certain areas of legal practice, and worked in house, and his his skills growing up in the projects, which exposed him to people from all over the world, uh, ended up being uh, the, the the big key to his success for multinational companies who had to form these international teams. He was good at working with pretty much anybody from anywhere. Norman, is there a short list of must-have skills that lead to success? The first one, uh, and it's, it's one that you might scratch your head over, is confidence. Um, it's not enough to have an answer in your head. If you can't communicate that answer with confidence, that, that you know what you're talking about, you can't possibly succeed. So the question becomes, you know, it, can confidence be taught? And the answer is yes. Uh, some of us require more practice than others. Many of us, for example, consider ourselves to be introverts. In fact, most of the population. We all have this uh, uh, incorrect assumption that the great speakers are all these wonderful extroverts. And, you know, if you put uh, Joel Osteen and Barack Obama to the side, because I think they're the true exceptions, uh, the rest of us can learn. But like everything else, and, and what I've proved in my career is if you practice it, and there's so many easy ways to practice, you can get better. And the key is to work at the things uh, that you know you're not good at to help build your confidence as you get better and, and practice in you know, in little bits and pieces, rather than, you know, walking up and speaking to a group of 100. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, and this is what I teach, we all have phones. And if you, if you actually practice telling a story into your phone and listening to the recording back, what you'll see is 
by the 25th time you've told that story, you can tell that story really well. Is, is it important to pick something you're passionate about or that you have a natural gift for? Or, like you did, so well, I, I guess I'll be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I had no idea what lawyers did, and, and most people don't. Uh, I think... But they look part, at part certain is, professions as, you know, as automatic success. Lawyers, doctors, dentists, and so on. And, you know, and, and some skill that they might have that they do different and better than anyone else, they just dismiss for fear that um, these other things might be a more proven track? Um, listen, it's, it, re regardless of what it is you choose to do, it's going to involve learning. And one of the things I teach is um, the more you get better at one thing, the harder it becomes to take on something you don't know how to do. And I've heard, I've heard this from third and fourth year lawyers now who, who I've been mentoring. And they say, listen, here's something. I, sh I really should have learned this in my first year or as a student, and, and I still don't know how to do it. And I hope nobody finds out I don't know how to do it. Instead of going back and say, I better learn how to do this. And, and, and the problem is, as we get better at one thing, and, and it's something we, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of part of... Uh, unfortunately part of becoming older is it's always our fear of being discovered that keeps us from learning why because we're you know we don't want people to find out we can't do it so we'll do everything in our power to avoid doing that and that can you know ultimately that can cut you off from a from a career you might be extraordinarily good at if you were to try it my guest is Norman Bacall, author of Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. Norman, um, are there, is there some good information in your book for people that are going to be recovering economically from the pandemic? There, so many people have lost jobs, um, had businesses fail, and so on. Um, is, is this a good reference or, or resource for people looking to figure out what's next? Yeah, I think if, if, you've, if you've got to start over if, and if you want some ideas about how to start over, um, we, we tend to think that our, you know, whatever our experience was, you know, we have to put aside and, and it's worthless in, in whatever the new economy is or the new world. And what we tend to not focus on is, okay, who do we know? You make a list of your contacts. Uh, who who can I speak to? Who who can I get advice from? Uh, who can who who can I speak to? What are the opportunities? And you'd be surprised to find out just how broad your existing network is if you're willing to uh, to mine it a bit. Uh, there's also a there, there's an opportunity to go back and say, okay, well, how do I retrain? Or what new skills can I learn that might actually be valuable now? And rather than saying, I can't learn that, like, I, you know, five, year, five years ago, uh, I was afraid of the Internet. Like, I had an assistant who did all this stuff for me. Uh, <laughs> and suddenly I didn't have an assistant, and I had to become my assistant. And believe me, I would have fired me a few times along the way, but I didn't have a choice. <laughs> so I, I had to, 
you know, I had to learn social media. God, I was, I was, I can't tell you how frightened I was in my late 50s learning social media. You can do it. You can learn it. Uh, it's at this point, in part, it's about taking the time, uh, finding the new skills. And, and you'll find, this, this is what I write about in my book. It's sort of a, uh, how do you think differently about yourself and about what you are capable of? And, and, and what are the little, I, I won't call them tricks, but what are, what are little things you need to both develop um, and how do you decide, you know, what to do next? You know, I have a chapter on, you know, literally, when do you move? Like, what, how do you take the next step in your career and when do you do it? Um, and and it, it all comes down to the, sort of the core center of my book, which is the only thing holding us back is our fear of failure. And if we can get over that hump, if we can say, okay, you know what? Failing's not a bad thing. I mean, there's not a, there, there wasn't a situation in my life where I didn't get over a failure and found I'd learned something about myself that became an asset for me going forward. And if I can get you, if you can just sit down and, you know, spend a couple hours, read the book, it's a really it's incredibly fast read, I think it can change your life. Well, that's quite... That's that's an excellent endorsement for the book, Norman. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if not me, who then? <laughs> Norman, we're almost out of time, and the time has gone very quickly. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate you taking the time to share some of these thoughts. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and, and really all of your work, past, present, and future. Um do you have a website? Sure. The hardest part about me is, is uh, and we went through it, Tom, at the beginning. It's like, how do you spell your name, Norm? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's Norman Bacall, B-A-C-A-L, uh, just one L at the end. And you can find me at normanbacall.com. Uh, you can just Google, or you can just Google my name. Lots of things will come up. Um, uh, I hope most of them good. Um uh, you can find my books on Amazon. So if you type in Norma Bacall, Take Charge on Amazon, uh, you'll find my book. Um, and, uh, and that should do it. But uh, all, all the information on me, I'm also, if you're on LinkedIn, if any of you are on LinkedIn or even on Facebook, you can look me up there too. Well, Norman, thanks so much for spending this time with me today. And uh, best of luck going forward with your writing career. Thank you, Tom. And uh, I look forward to the future. I always, uh, always have to stay optimistic. There you go. Take care. All right. Thank you. That was uh, Norman Bacall. He is uh, the author of a new book called Take Charge, The Skills That Drive Professional Success. And we're going to have uh, more of the Tom Sumner program coming up in... Uh, after we take a short break, we're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 FM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House, Spectacle Productions, and my friend Paul Herring. Um, if, uh, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And... Uh, you're welcome to sponsor this show and become part of our our little breaks. Anyway, in the meantime, don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. 
We have more straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dance, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From 
This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, I worked as an accountant for a number of years in Chicago, uh, and I had a kind of a strange uh, theory of accountancy. Uh, I had always felt, uh, you know, if you got within two or three bucks of it, But this never really caught on. <laughs> and as a consequence, I held a number of different accounting jobs, you see. And it seemed like whenever I would go with a company, uh, they would always be having a retirement party. And I found out one thing. They are all alike. Uh, different people will retire. Different people make the speeches. But they all say the same tired old thing. I went to one in Chicago for a guy named Chuck Bedlow. He was an accountant, and he was retiring after 50 years. And first of all, Mr. Clayton got up. He was the president. He gave a little address. Then Mr. Tipton, the vice president, gave a little address. And finally, Bruce Higgins, the head of the accounting department, got up and gave a little address. And he was Mr. Trite. He used every cliche that had ever been used at a retirement party, uh, and he said things like this. Well, uh, uh, golly, I guess today's the day, isn't it? <laughs> it's, uh, it's really going to seem funny, though, uh, golly, walking in here Monday morning and, and not seeing, uh, not seeing uh, uh, Charlie's uh, smiling, happy face there at the desk. I, uh, I got to calling him smiling, easygoing Charlie. <laughs> and I guess most of us had some sort of nickname or other. We used to call him from time to time. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget a... Well, that, that too, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget a kind of amusing thing happened. Uh, I had just gotten out of college, and... Uh, now, what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for here? I, I, well, a, a little wet behind the ears, I guess, might be the way to put it. <laughs> and I was made department head here. And uh, many's the night that Charlie and I used to uh, sort of uh, burn the midnight oil, so to speak. So let's really hear it now for a wonderful old guy. Uh... Uh, Charlie uh, Bredlow. Bedlow, Bedlow. Charlie? Well, uh, uh, thank, uh, thank you very much, Bruce. Golly, I've been uh, sitting here uh, listening to uh, Mr. Clayton and um, Miss, Mr. Tipton, and of course Bruce here, and through all of their species, one thought kept sort of uh, recurring in my mind. 
I, uh, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I have never heard such dribble in all my life. <laughs> I, I don't suppose that it, it ever occurred to any of you that I had to get half stoned every morning to make it down to this crummy job. <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd, you'd be smiling and easy going if you were gassed all the time, too. <laughs> but you put in your 50 years and they give you this crummy watch. They, I try to, try to make a big deal out of it. It works out to about 28 cents a year. But uh, ser seriously, if it hadn't been for the 50 bucks a week that I glommed out of petty cash, Well, I, I just, uh, I couldn't have made it on the, <laughs> on the lousy salary they pay it. <laughs> oh, and then uh, someone started the rumor about Miss um, Wilson, the, uh, the cashier, and myself. <laughs> and everyone was running, if, uh, you know, when I retire, and uh, she gets back from her vacation in Florida. Well, there, well uh, we would get married, I suppose, and spend our declining years down there. Uh, she, she isn't coming back, by the way. <laughs> I understand that sweet old Miss Wilson is uh, into this company for about 100,000 bucks. <laughs> It's a little deal that she's worked out. <laughs> she either calls it uh, double payrolling or ghost payrolling or some, something having to do with payrolling. <laughs> I can never make heads or tails out of what she was talking about. Of course, she's uh, down in Mexico with a hundred thou. And I'm up here with this crummy watch. <laughs> So anything that I might say, I suppose, would be sour grapes. <laughs> One last thing. A lot of uh, people have asked me, Charlie, what are you going to do when you finally retire? Oh, are you going to get a little uh, part-time job in Florida or uh, just a lull around the beach? Or, in other words, what am I going to do? I have some tapes from some office parties. <laughs> that I'm I'm going to let go for fifteen hundred bucks a copy. 
Now let me let me take that back a minute. Uh, the June picnic may run seventeen five. <laughs> And with the money that I make off of the tapes, and Ms. Wilson's under a thou, I should uh, do pretty good. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Alexander Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.